And now I'm going to do the scripture reading today. It's Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. And it can be found near the end of the Old Testament, right after Daniel and right before Joel. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to him other gods and love other cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lectet of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord, their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to the goodness in the latter days. Thank you so much. Well, in uh, 2009, at 2 a.m. in November, Elin waited till her husband fell asleep after taking his nightly Ambien. And as he drifted off to sleep, she grabbed his cell phone, took it to the other room, and started scrolling through text messages. And it took only a few moments before her heart was stabbed with deep sorrow and betrayal as all the rumors from the National Enquirer and all the things that people have been whispering about were confirmed. She saw a text that said this, you're the only one I've ever loved. And this was from her husband to anonymous number. She stared long and hard at those words, you're the only one I've ever loved. And moments later, Tiger Woods was fleeing from his house in just a shirt and shorts in 40 degree weather with his wife in tow with one of his clubs trying to get him. He got into his Cadillac Escalade and drove into the night, but because the sleep meds and because the panic of everything, he uh, ran into a fire hydrant and and, and swerved out of the way and ran into a tree. And uh, a lot of you guys know the story about Tiger Woods, and I recently read his biography uh, because You know, he had this big win in the Masters, and everyone was talking about this big comeback win in the redemption. And I was like, what happened to all the other stuff? And so I picked up his book, and I listened to it on Audible. And it's his most thorough biography. And the biographer goes deep into his rehab process. After all these allegations came out, it turned out that he had over uh, several dozen affairs over the course of a few years. And it was getting out of hand. And his wife, Elin, they had... Um, children, and she wanted to make it work. She wanted to stay together for the sake of the children. And so what she did is uh, she went to counseling with him, and he went to this rehab center, and there's one point where he sat there and just wrote out on a letter every single thing he did over the last few years, almost everything. And she was willing to work with him, but the National Enquirer or another news source, I forgot which one, broke another story about a next-door neighbor that he hooked up with in his own home. And when she heard that, she just couldn't. She couldn't do it anymore. She gave up and she took the kids and they got a divorce. Despite Tiger's pleas, it um, was over. It was irrevocably broken. 
their marriage? How can you trust someone who has so deceitfully been playing with you and lying behind your back and um, giving nothing? Your, your word meant nothing. Your covenant meant nothing. And so she gave up. And who would, who would blame her? Who here would be like, what's wrong with you, Elin? How did you not stay with him? Have any of you guys here been betrayed before in a relationship? Have you ever had your heart um, crushed by someone who you loved that said they loved you? Or whether it was a romantic relationship or maybe it was a family member or a good friend? I know I have. And in those moments, you feel like your heart would literally burst and you could die. That you could cry so many tears and yet there's more tears to cry and it's a well that never goes dry. In those times where your head hurts so much because you've been crying so hard and you feel like you're in a dream and you cannot believe this is reality. You're like, this, this can't be. This is, this is I'm going to wake up soon. This is, is not real. This is too surreal. And if you've ever been in that situation or known someone, you've probably at least known someone who's been there, would you give that person a second try? Or a third try? Or a fourth try? At what point would you say, enough is enough. You are not faithful. I'm done with you. Our text today reveals a God who was cheated on over and over and over again, and yet he loves over and over again. We see in our text a God who loves cheaters. Yes, even serial cheaters. A God who despite all reason, despite probably the the courts of heaven and Satan and his minions laughing at him, for being turned, uh, betrayed again, for being cheating on again, he still loves at grace, great cost to himself. And if you're not a follower of Jesus or you have skepti- you're skeptical about Christianity, if you want to know what our God is like, what at the core of his heart is like, what his character is like, please listen. Because this text will show you right at the heart of Christianity. There is a pastor who is now deceased named James Montgomery Boyce, and he preached through the whole Bible. And on his chapter on Hosea, Hosea chapter 3, the one we're in today, he, he titled it The Greatest Chapter in the Bible. Now, I, I don't know if I can say that, but I know why he would say it. Because in this chapter, you don't just hear theology, you see it lived out, flesh and blood, in a real life example. And if you want to know what is the gospel really like, oh, that sounds so abstract, Jesus dying on the cross for us, and what does that even mean? What is he dying for? You can see it. You can see it as clear as day in this story. Let me give you guys a little background of where we are um, going. Now, I want to be clear. This passage is, this, this text is given to the people of Israel in a certain time. But it's going to be very relevant for us. And I'm going to apply most of it to us because we are very much like Israel. And when you see the heart of Israel, you get to see a lot of our hearts too. And the way God redeems them, you see that he redeems us too, ultimately through Jesus. So if you see me applying this text to us, I I just want to be clear, that's why I'm doing that. Also, whenever we see in the text that says the Lord with all caps, L-O-R-D, I'm going to say the word Yahweh, or at least I'm going to try to remember. And the reason why I'm going to use that is because this is a very, very personal book in the Bible. It's not very abstract and it's not very formal. It's very deeply personal, intimate. And God gave to his people, Israel, his special name, Yahweh, for them to call him by. 
It was his special covenant name for his beloved. Other nations could not know him as Yahweh, but only them. And so I'm gonna highlight that word Yahweh, his name, his personal name. Now on to verse one, okay? They're gonna be on the screens or you can, uh, I suggest look at a Bible or there's even pew Bibles around you too if you wanna grab one. Hosea chapter three, verse one. I'm gonna read this. There's a lot here and we're gonna break it up in sections, but I'm gonna go through it again. And Yahweh said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as Yahweh loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Now let's start off with this phrase, love again. Yahweh is speaking to him and he calls him, Hosea, to love again. Well, for, for him to say love again, which means by, by necessity means that he had to have told him to love before, for the first time. Which brings us back to chapter one, verse two. Hosea chapter one, verse two. When Yahweh first, see, first spoke through Hosea, Yahweh said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking Yahweh. Now, I apologize for saying whoredom so much. And this text does not pull any punches. This is not rated G. This is not Disney friendly. And the reason why it's so explicit is because it's trying to wake people up from the realities that people are sleeping on. And it's using this very strong emotive language to show the reality of their state. It's using these words like whoredom, which means that they're giving themselves to other gods, other lovers. They have betrayed the one whom they have committed to, they've betrayed the one whom they say they love for others. And at this time, Hosea is preaching to Israel and it was a little tricky, unique time because even though they were so spiritually dead, they were actually physically prospering, which was really confusing for them because they thought often that when they were prosperous, that means God was good with them. And so this was really deceptive for them because they were abounding in money and they actually had lots of peace. And so they thought all things are well with me and God. But the issue was, is that underneath it all, they were just full of dead bones. They were spiritually dead. And they were looking to these idols for provision. They were looking for protection. They were looking for purpose. And they're also looking for love. And these idols could not give any of them. And Israel was so hard and so blind. And for hundreds of years, different prophets are, prophets are on the scene and saying, repent, turn. The Assyrians are going to come. Another land is going to come and judge you unless you turn back to your rightful God. But they would keep ignoring and keep ignoring. So instead of sending another messenger who would merely proclaim, God sent another message who would display. And so God sent Hosea and said, Hosea, I want you to live out a living drama in front of all of Israel of what is actually going on spiritually. And as they were spiritually whoring themselves to other nations and other idols, Yahweh then calls Hosea, I want you to show them what it looks like. So I want you now to go wed a woman who will guarantee break your heart. She will definitely cheat on you. She is a promiscuous woman. And in all this, the whole community can see this holy man marrying this disreputable woman and gawk, gawk and say, what, what is going on here? And they would ask, why are you doing this, Hosea? Don't you know about her reputation? Don't you know about what she's done in the past? Don't you know how she looks at other guys? And it would be a, just a living example for everyone. This is, this is what's going on to all of us spiritually. 
Now, let's look back at verse one. So he says he's called to love a woman again. Notice it says woman. It doesn't say Gomer, nor does it say wife, which has led some scholars and some preachers to say, hey, this is another woman. Because if it was Gomer, it would use the word Gomer or wife. Now, here are three reasons real quick that I think it's actually still Gomer. One, because she's given herself to other lovers, she has broken the covenant. So in many ways, she's not worthy and fit to call herself wife. Here's another reason. If you look further on, it says, is an adulteress. Oh, no, same verse. Verse one, it says an adulteress. God is calling her an adulteress. How can she be an adulteress if she's not married? So by necessity, she has to be married if she's gonna be called an adulteress. And finally, third, the whole book is a metaphor, a living metaphor of God consistently loving one, someone who continues to spurn him. And so the whole metaphor falls apart if this is another woman. You guys tracking with me? Right? If he just loves another, it's like, wait, wait, how is God's love steadfast if he's going to just pick another person now? And it's because it's the same person. So hopefully that is convincing to you. It's also interesting to note that no women are, uh, no, no children are listed here. In chapter one, Hosea is shown to have three children with Gomer. And yet in this chapter, you don't hear a word about the children. Why? What happened to them? And I don't want to be overly, overly speculative, but if we keep reading, and we'll, we will in a second, um, she's bought into slavery. And so she's a slave. Most likely, she doesn't have her children with her. So she's abandoned Hosea, and she's abandoned her husband, and her children, I mean. Look at this phrase, who is loved by another man. I found that striking as I was praying and reading over this. It, it, it's, I, I don't think she's just going out to get her kicks. She has affection for these men. Her heart is given. She's in relationship with these people. There's something more deeply painful about them than just someone who just wants a quick one night stand. And so with all that background, with what's going on with Hosea, with, with what's going on in Gomer, what does God command Hosea to do? And if you, would rant, if you would not read this passage before, you know what you probably would think if you didn't know any better? Hosea, go shame her. Hosea, go grab her hair and drag her into the middle of the marketplace and shame her in front of everyone. Go punish her, go whip her, go judge her. But no, what does Yahweh call Hosea to do? Go love her again. Love her again. The one who's already broken your heart. See, when I read this, I've read this a number of times over the years. And the problem with that, the potential problem with that, is that I can get really callous to it. Oh yeah, yeah, Jose, you're you're called to love Gomer again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you think he felt? Like, are, are we really feeling the weight of this? Hey, go love the person who totally just shamed you in front of the whole community and left you for another man and abandoned your children. Are we just like, oh yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, you should love them. We should feel the scandal and the deep pain. Can you imagine the emotional turmoil within his heart? God, love her again. How could I love her again? She's gonna just take my heart and stab it again on a platter. I can't do that. How would you feel? Would you obey God if he were to call out and it was clearly him and not some sort of, you know, satanic ruse? It was if God really asked you, hey, go love this person. Would you do it? 
Would you obey God? I, I like this quote from Jennifer Rothschild. She has a Bible study um, on Hosea, and she said this. At that moment, maybe Hosea needed to love God more than he loved Gomer in order to obey. And I, and I wonder if that's probably kind of what happened right there. Uh, Gomer wasn't maybe overflowing with love. Maybe perhaps he was saying, I love you, God, so I'm going to go forward. Maybe, maybe I don't want to overly speculate. But God is not calling Hosea to do anything that he himself has not done or is willing to do. Look at the next part. Even as Yahweh loves the children of Israel. Even as I do it. He's calling Hosea to mimic what he has already been doing for centuries. Not sitting on a a throne deistically, apathetically saying, oh yeah, you do that. I'm going to just sit back here and chill. No, no, no. I am bringing you, Hosea, into my very heart. I'm bringing you to in the very thing that I've been doing. And it's interesting, he switches the metaphors here from loving a spouse to loving a child. And what you're going to see throughout the Bible, we're going to talk more about the metaphors. Metaphors will switch a lot because God is trying to help us see different angles of the way he relates to his people. And we're going to talk about metaphors in another minute. Now, let's look at God's remarkable love. His love is only as remarkable as what follows. Though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Now, we're going to get to the cakes of raisins for a minute because I'm sure some of you guys are like, what? Does God have something against raisins or cakes or baked goods, right? Um, We'll get there to a second. But this phrase is absolutely insane. Though they turn to other gods, you would think he would say, as the Lord loves, as Yahweh loves the children of Israel, as they love him back, or because they're so beautiful, or because they've served him so well, or because they're so faithful. No, no, no. Even as they have given themselves to other gods, it's one thing to love a random person and them not love you back. It's like you couldn't get all crazy. Like, guys, I love this person. They don't, do you even know them? No. Or, oh, Sam, get over it. All right? it, it, it. But it's a completely different case when you're loving someone who has mutually committed to you like Israel did on Sinai and say, hey, we are yours. And then running away. You see, that's a completely different thing. To love someone random is not that bad if they turn their back on you, if you love someone who said, I am yours forever. And that's what's going on here. That is why it's so scandalous. Now, let's talk about these cakes of raisins, okay? God doesn't have anything against big goods. Let's just be clear. So eat good, big goods to the glory of God in moderation. Now, if you, there's several texts in the Bible, like 2 Samuel 6, 19, that even talks about other baked goods and cakes of raisins, and they're totally fine in those contexts. So whenever you read the Bible, you can't just take one thing out of context and just run with it. You have to understand it in the light of everything that's going around it. And everything going around this cakes of raisins in this passage is idolatry. And from what we know from other writings in antiquity, we know that people would use certain baked goods for aphrodisiacs, or they could buy them and worship their God or support idols buying these, or they could even take them and sleep with temple prostitutes. Now, we don't know exactly what was going on in Israel. All of the above could be true, and nothing is beyond them, actually. But um, at least we know that it's connected to idolatry. So if you were like, what is going on? Do I need to throw away my, my raisin, little raisin box in my backpack? You can keep it, all right? Now, as I was preparing this message, I realized just how callous I am to this truth, to what we're reading. I've been begging God, God, please break my heart for this truth. 
break my heart for this passage because it's so familiar. I was, I was prepping, I was doing my commentaries, I was in the Hebrew, and I was doing all the kind of stuff. And yet my heart was just like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, I never heard that. And I write it down. Oh, they'll like hearing this. And my heart wasn't gripped. I think when we talk about God loving people who cheat on him, if I, if I told you this, hey, do you believe that God loves people who cheat on him? I think most of us would be like, of course. Of course he does. We presume on it. We almost feel entitled to it. Oh yeah, of course God loves people who cheat on him. Of course he loves people who wrong him. That's, his, that's who he is. God is love, right? And I feel like we don't feel the scandal behind that. If I were to tell I've been cheating on Joanna for our entire marriage with dozens of women. And I were to tell you, and she's taking me back. And she's pursuing me. Would you, would you all be like, oh, of course. Of course. Yeah, totally. That's fine. That's good. That's what a good Christian. No, you'd probably be like, wait, wait, are you, sure, are you sure? Joanna? Because he has a history of deceiving you. Maybe he's lying. Are, are you sure? Maybe he's going to cheat on you again. Wouldn't you do that out of love for her? Wouldn't you guys like, whoa, whoa, whoa. See, that, that's what we would do with anyone else, right? And yet when God loves people with this kind of ferocious, steadfast, some would even say reckless, if you want to use it in a certain way, love, we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's just what God does. Isn't it amazing he loves like that? If you have doubts about God's existence or the Bible, Here's one way to think about the evidence of God. It's a Bible. You think if you, someone would write a Bible and make up a religion, they would write a God who would love like this? Do you really think you'd sit in a room and say, all right, let's create a God who will love people who totally cheat on him? That doesn't even make sense. That doesn't fit. This is insanity. And God, I pray, Father, please, please, Father, Please work in our hearts right now. Let these truths freshly pierce us and stir us to worship and humility and repentance and joy. Would you pray that right now, just quickly? Just, God, let this truth freshly move me. I think this could help. I said a a minute ago I would talk about metaphors. Throughout the Bible... There are many metaphors of how God relates to his people. He relates as a creator to creation. He relates as a king to subjects. He relates as a shepherd to sheep. He even relates in a great intimate way as a father to children. But none of these by themselves fully encapsulate God's relation towards us. And this passage we've been reading and this book we've been in teaches us that God also relates us in an intensely personal, intimate, committed way that can only be understood if you understand marriage. If you only understand him as a bridegroom. And you won't fully understand how God relates to you and how he emotionally relates to you unless you view him also as a bridegroom and as you as his cherished bride. Sorry, guys, but this is, this is um, symbolic. Let's just be clear. Tim Keller is really, really helpful here. There's a quote up here on the screen. You do not understand the impact of wrongdoings on your God until you understand this image. When a king sees a citizen breaking rule, a rule, that makes him angry. 
When a shepherd sees a sheep straying, shepherds say, oh, you know, sheep. When a father sees a child disobeying him, that makes him angry. When the person you love most in your life is putting him or herself in the arms of another lover, that's different. God says, until you've been through that or you know somebody who has been through that, you don't understand the impact of your wrongdoing and your coldness and your waywardness on me. It goes to another level, doesn't it? When you start viewing our sin, when we start viewing our sin as cheating, being in the arms of another lover, not a oopsie or I miss the mark. So for any of us who have been cheated on or betrayed or experienced it through a close relationship, that is what God feels like when we sin. That, that gives us a little glimpse of what he feels and except way more. Now finally to verse two. We're gonna go a lot faster for the rest of these. Verse one was packed with a lot there to, to go through. Verse two. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. Now, verse two comes at, as a shock for me because you would expect Homer, uh, not Homer, <laughs> Gomer to just be picked up by him, that he's just, she's just hanging out at this guy's house she's, she's with and that he just gets her. But according to this passage, it tells us that he bought her, bought her. So somehow she became a slave. And there's three primary ways you could be a slave in this uh, age. Uh, you, could, you could be captured and you could become a slave. You could be born into slavery. Or third, you can get into so much debt that you are now in, put into slavery. Now, we're not sure exactly all that came to be, but somehow things got so bad with her relationships, maybe with a pimp. I don't know what happened, that she eventually was bought and she was someone else's property. And we know quite a bit about what slavery was like in this age. There's a lot of writing outside of the Bible to give us a picture. And so you can just imagine with me, imagine with me. There's a, a marketplace and there's these blocks where the slaves stand on. And typically the slaves would be naked because those who would bid on them would have to see everything, see their condition. And if they would use them in another, any sexual ways, they would want to see their goods. I'm being crass on purpose because this is how evil it was. And as these slaves would stand there, people would make bids on them. And you can imagine Hosea walking through and he sees his wife, his ex-wife, the one that he's supposed to pursue, the one who's broken his heart, the mother of his three children. And I wonder if she's closing her eyes because of all the shame. And she's hearing different numbers. One shekel, two shekel, three shekels. And all of a sudden she hears a familiar voice. Is, is that Hosea? Four shekels. And it finally gets up to 15 shekels. And it finally gets up to 15 shekels and some produce. And he wins her back. And you can imagine the thoughts that go through his head. Maybe at first he was thinking, it's not too late to turn around. Or maybe he's thinking, does anyone recognize me? Does anyone know that she used to be my wife? You can wonder the thoughts that could go through Gomer's head. What is he doing here? What does he want with me? Is he trying to get even with me now? Is he going to buy me so that he could torture me? To shame me? 
Or, or maybe if, if she knows Hosea's character well enough, maybe she'd think, well, maybe, kind of like the prodigal son, maybe I could just be a servant in his house. Maybe that's what he's going to do. Maybe one last um, ounce of compassion comes out to me and he's buying me so I can be a servant in his house and not have the shame of being um, abused by the mother owner. Maybe that's going through her mind. And, and if, if you understand the Old Testament law, there were certain amounts that would be accessible to buy a household slave and that would be about 30 shekels of silver. And a lot of scholars would say that this amount would equal to about 30 shekels of silver. So she is bought as just a common house slave. And Hosea purchases her. He covers her probably with his cloak and brings her home. And you can imagine that outcry. You can imagine the mockers. Hosea, you couldn't keep your wife satisfied? And she left you, and she's only coming back because you bought you bought her. Hosea, we told you, we told you what she was like. You knew this was coming. You're a fool. And to to add insult to injury, if you understand how marriage works, there was a dowry he already paid for. He already paid for her her, her family, and so in, in one sense, Gomer is bought twice. She is bought twice. And this is an absolute stain on his reputation to the whole community. And so Hosea buys her, and as his slave, he has a lot of power in this culture. And there's a lot of great protective measures in the Old Testament to to make sure slaves were treated as humans. But at this time of um, of the kingdom, they aren't caring about the law. No one would fault him if he had a oopsie and killed her or beat her too hard or did something awful to her. And plus, Old Testament law says if you find an adulteress, you could stone them, right? So he has lots of reasons and lots of um, freedom to do terrible things. So what will he do? Well, let's look at verse three, Hosea 3, 3. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man and so will I also be to you. You see what he says? He, he, he doesn't just put her in her place. He puts her in his place. You see how that passage ends? There's a mutuality there. He's calling her to be committed to him as he will be committed to her. As equals. Not as a slave. He takes her from a slave and he elevates her to a wife. Now, it's not an overnight thing. It takes some time because she needs a time of purification. And in the Hebrew grammar here, a little more carefully, it, it makes it sound as if this is actually a season of waiting. So not only does she have to be set apart and intimate only with him and pure for him and prioritize him and not all the other places and stay at home, they're going to have a season of abstinence. It's kind of like a purging season. But then again, they'll be joined. One, one day, they'll be joined back together again. This is powerful. He, he doesn't keep her down. He doesn't use the past as leverage against her. He brings her back into the home. And the same kind of commitment he's calling her, he's offering also. And remember, what is happening right now in this love story between Gomer and Hosea is a reality going on spiritually in Israel. 
the broken marriage between God and Israel. And Hosea's instruction to his wife is the same that's gonna happen to Israel. Well, let's look at verse four. So now it's gonna go from this very, really, really uh, like microscopic view into this relationship and it's gonna zoom out to how this is connected to the bigger story of what's going on between Israel and God. Verse four. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Now, if you're not very familiar with the Bible, a lot of those words are gonna be unfamiliar. If you read through the Old Testament, a lot of those things will, would be flags to you. Basically, what's going on is God, Yahweh, is systematically removing every political and spiritual institution that they have. Good ones like sacrifices in the ephod and also bad ones like pillars and household gods. He's totally dismantling them. You remember a few weeks ago in the beginning of this message, I talk about idolatry. Why, did, why was idolatry like Baal so attractive? Well, they would go to these idols because they wanted protection. They wanted purpose. They wanted provision. And they also wanted love. And in some way they would um, use all of them. And so God is removing all the providers all the protection, and all the provision. Remember the last, pa- last chapter, he's gonna break the bow. So they're no longer gonna have that peace. Also, there's gonna be a great famine, so they're not gonna have the provision. And so every safety net they have that they're leaning on, everything they're trusting on, he's just cutting right from under them. And so they have nothing left but him. And for a while, they're going to harden themselves in their sin. A while, they're going to be fine with it, out him. They're going to try to make it on their own. I, we, we got this. We got this. But eventually, verse 5 is going to happen. God doesn't just take from them. He also wants to give to them. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to Yahweh and to the goodness in the latter days. Yahweh's discipline is not to just punish, but to purify. He takes only so he can give. He wounds only so he can heal. He's doing all this to set his people to be a bride set apart for him. And because they're so thick-headed and so hard-hearted, it takes great measures. Doesn't it not (laughs) for us? You see this in chapter two, verse seven. <clears throat> Hosea two seven. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. Then than now. Eventually she's gonna wake up. And I just want to challenge all parents, if you want to practice your kids speaking, have them read that second part of verse seven. She shall say, quickly, as I was rehearsing this message earlier, I could not say it. So if I said it clearly, it was only by the grace of God. And you see this also beautiful promise in Second Chronicles seven fourteen that is, is kind of giving you a bigger picture of what's going to happen with Israel. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, if you listen carefully or read carefully, you saw it talk about seeking David, their king. 
Anyone catch that? Come again? Because at this point, David's body is decomposed. He's dead. How are they seeking him? Well, to be clear, it's not the King David, but it's a Davidic type. Now, throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we see that the Messiah will come from David's line, the tribe of Judah. And so ultimately, they're going to be seeking that which comes from David's line. You can see it in Ezekiel 34, 3. And I will set up for, over them one shepherd, my servant David. Again, not the physical David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, Yahweh, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am Yahweh. I have spoken. And so what we're seeing here is something that Romans 11 is going to unpack more that can be quite confusing and debated. But basically, sometime in the latter days, there's going to be a great movement among God's people, the Jews. I don't know how that ethnically works out with their bloodlines or, or, or what, but eventually they're going to seek Jesus as Messiah and be turned to him. You can see it in the next passage up here, Romans 11:25. I know this is a little deep in the weeds, but it's important to know that God has not forgotten his people Israel. And even though he's brought us, the church, into it, there's still a plan for them that I don't understand fully. So if you press me, I don't have much more, okay? I could give you some books. <laughs> Lest you be wise in your sight, this is Paul speaking, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. See, it's a mystery. So I can, I can, I can feign ignorance because it's a mystery. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. We're Gentiles here, non-Jews. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Okay, there's a lot more. We can maybe do a midweek podcast to talk more about how we relate with Israel as as the church. But there's gonna be a day where what happens in Hosea 3, 5, what is said there will happen. In the latter days, they will return to him and they'll seek him with all their hearts and Yahweh will restore them. And we get to see that one day. Now, as we wrap up, let me ask you the simple question. What has God done for us? We've been talking about what God has done for Hosea and Gomer, because he certainly redeemed Gomer in this situation. And we've talked about what he's going to do for Israel, but what about us? Well, he has loved us over and over again, even though we've wronged him, even though we've cheated on him, and we've made commitments to him. God has paid the price to our master, sin. And brought you into the scene of them coming around the, 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 the slave market. Imagine you're also on the slave market and your master with, a, with a, a rope around your neck, his name is Sin, and you're a captive. And the only way to pay off for your life, the only way to purchase you is with another life. Now I mentioned to you earlier that the price of a common slave was 30 pieces of silver. Now, have, have you ever heard 30 pieces, pieces of silver before outside of the Old Testament? And if you know the story, the good old story, that one of Jesus' best friends betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. And the price of our redemption, the price of our freedom is another person's life. The wages of sin is death and if we don't pay it, someone else has to. 
And thanks be to God that God sent his only son willingly to come and take the price, pay the debt we could not pay with a life that we did not deserve. He exchanged himself. So bringing yourself back to this slave market, what would be a more fitting thing is not Hosea getting some change out uh, of his pocket and some produce to pay for Gomer, but actually he'd say, all right, wait, let her go free, but take me. And that is what ultimately Jesus, our great redeemer did. Let them go free and take me. Let me die on that cross. Let me take them off so they don't have to have that punishment and that suffering and let me hop on for them. Because that's ultimately what happened on the cross. He didn't just take some sin and just like put them on him. He, he became sin for us. He became our place. He didn't just die on a cross. He died for our cross. On our cross, that was for us. And, and he doesn't just rescue us and, and die for our penalty. He also covers us with his goodness and his righteousness. And he doesn't just cover us, he brings us into his home. And he doesn't just bring us into the home to be a servant, he brings us to a home to be a son and to be part of his family. Is this not the most amazing news ever? Is this not the most unbelievable news you could ever hear? And if you're here and you're not sure that Jesus died for you, if you're not sure that you have forgiveness of sins, and you're not sure what will happen if you die tonight, you can have that freedom. You can have forgiveness of sins. You can be free from sins and you can have him as your father and you can have him as your redeemer. And all you gotta do is confess Jesus as Lord, turn from your own sin and your own control and put your trust in him. And we'd love to talk to you about that more. We'd love to baptize you and bring you into the family. Now, let me ask this as we finish. How shall we now live? After all this, how shall we now live? Well, let me say this. How do you do loving those who wrong you? How do you do loving those who wrong you? At what point do you wrong others after they've wronged you? What's your threshold? Ignoring a text, not getting back to you in time, forgetting something important, or something a lot more sinister and intentional? See, the extent that you love those who wrong you shows how much you understand what you've done to God. The extent of your love and mercy towards those who wrong you shows how much you realize you have cheated and hurt God. And if you have very little forgiveness and very little patience for those who wrong you and you're really quick to cut ties and be done with people, you have no idea how merciful God has been to you. But those of us who love those who wrong us and spit in our faces and turn their back on, on us has shown that what has been done to us is now being done through us. And that's what God wants to do for all of us. The great gospel that we receive, his love and his forgiveness, he wants to now do through us as he's done it to us. And so a great application point for us is for us to walk in greater um, receptivity of his love and his forgiveness and a greater weight of our sin towards him so that we can now love others as he has loved us, even if they wrong us in the most horrific, terrible ways. And if you want to understand and get to know Jesus more, and if you're praying, God, I want to be nearer to you, then beware. You're going to be wronged real soon. And he's going to enter you into the circle of suffering 
of what it feels like to be wronged by those whom you love so much. And it will be painful, but you will understand his love more than ever. Here's another one. I have three. If you've been cheating on the Lord, come back. Remember, I talked about an idol is basically anything you're finding provision, purpose, protection, love in more than God. If there's anything that gets you more excited than loving God and being about his purposes, you have an idol. It's a career. It could even be a family member. It could be a wife. It could be children. It could be good things. It could be even church service. Anything that comes in the place of God, that can be an idol. And I just ask you, return to him. Return to him. But, but you're not returning to one sitting there like this, tapping his foot. You're returning to one who's like this. I've been pursuing you this whole time. Come home. Come return to him. If you have any idols, cut them loose. They will bring death to you. And only you'll have life with him. That's all he brings, is life. And if you have a marriage, um, I, I just want to challenge all of you who, who are married. You have a great opportunity to show the gospel in your marriage by how you love your spouse when they wrong you or they don't do something you want. I just call all of our marriages to just fight to display the love of God, the redeeming love of God in our marriages. And finally, I'm calling all of us to celebrate the goodness of God and rest in his love. If you're like me, you're a screw up and you mess up often and you know the bar of holiness is high and you, the way you, you fall short is, is, is low, it's, it's great. And it's so good that we get to rest in the reality that we're not working to be approved, but we're working from approval. We're not working to get his love, but we've already got his love and we can just receive and rest in it and then out of that overflow in our love. And if you don't feel good enough, welcome to the club. That's the only people who can be Christians is those who know they're not good enough. And we get to rest in his love and his love continues to transform us. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this redeeming love. Thank you for not walking away when you saw us on the slave block. Thank you for, for not just giving us a little, a little bit of your money or a little blessing, but you gave us yourself. Thanks for stepping up on the block for us. Thanks for pursuing me, even though I am so hard-headed and so hard-hearted. Thank you for loving me, Father, even though I turn from you so often, run from you and resist your voice and make it hard for you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. If we were you, we would have given up long ago. Thank you, Lord. And if there's anyone here that you are pursuing that is running, I pray that they would just stop and receive your love and be restored to you. And for all of us here, even if we're not explicitly from now, that we would be deeper into your arms than ever before, receiving your love, enjoying your love, and that you would purge our house, purge all of us from all idols that compete with you. Oh God, thank you so much for this redeeming love. We love you and we worship you. And I pray that you continue to minister to us in Jesus' name. Amen.